Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Okay, hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer podcast. This week, I'm really honored to have John Rodell as my guest. Um, John, I found John's work probably as many of you have through um, Facebook posts that seem to be just showing up on my um, on my feed again and again because they've been shared so many times. John is a poet, a writer, a comic, a storyteller. Um, on his website, he professes to be a terrible dancer. Um, and my sense of him is that he's really a wholehearted human. And you know, in this podcast, that's really what I'm looking for across the world. And it's it's really exciting to me um, when I see someone showing up fully. And, and I think that John's work is, is going viral because that is how he's showing up in the world. He is the, um, he's the writer of Facebook conversations. Hey God, Hey John, which are a new book. Well, I don't know how new it is now, but it's a fabulous book. And so many of those conversations and poems in that book brought tears to my eyes. And if I did read them on Facebook, they kind of made me stop my scrolling, which is no small feat. Um, and so, John, welcome. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. That was such a lovely introduction. That was really nice. I need to maybe talk with you every morning for my self-esteem <laughs> just to get the day going. So that was really nice. Thank you. Thank you, John. And, you know, when I when I read your stuff, um, it's this really beautiful blend of creativity and vulnerability. And I think you speak to a lot of themes that a lot of us are feeling right now. And so it's the sort of thing that, um, like a lot of your poems, I find, I feel them in my heart. Like I, they hit me in this certain way. Um, and can you talk a little bit just about the process of being vulnerable? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and so I, I, I would say that I've been kind of writing like this, um, since about 2015, uh, 2016, I started putting these conversations with God, God on Facebook and um, just started, I think, misusing the entire use of what Mark Zuckerberg had in mind when he <laughs> created Facebook years ago. I don't think he thought, oh, I can't wait to create a platform for a 40-year-old guy in midlife crisis to suddenly find his uh, poetic heart, but uh, that's what I've done. So I started about 2015 um, just kind of sharing these parts of my life uh, you know I kind of grew up as a class clown trying to make people laugh um, so the idea of putting authentically real skeletons in my closet for everyone to pick through on social media was never something I ever really had a plan for or intended but just one day I was really struggling I was struggling with uh, my I, I was a, born, I was a cradle Catholic um, and so I was struggling with parts of my faith that I'd always grown up with, struggling with uh, my own mental health. I was reading every self-help book in the world I could get my hands on. And I, I was floundering. And I thought, I'm not finding the right words for me in the world. So I 
I started making fun of the whole process. It all started as just kind of a joke. I started having these little conversations with God about things like reality television or, you know, how to make risotto or why I shouldn't ever wear skinny jeans, things like that, that were just supposed to be kind of making fun at my faith crisis and mental health. And the more I did it, the more accidentally I started putting these little breadcrumbs of truth that I didn't even know I was putting in at the time. It was it was really strange that, in fact, a, really kind of a few months into the project, for the first time ever, I typed, I have depression, and I never even thought about that to myself. It was one of those moments that if, you know, you're sitting at home journaling and you kind of write things and, you know, sometimes journaling, you can unlock parts of your life that you never thought were there until all of a sudden you're writing it down. Well, I was kind of doing this all in real time on Facebook and I typed it out and I sat there for about an hour or two deciding if I'm going to post this or not, because it's going to change the way people look at me. It's going to change the perception. I live in a smallish town, about 50,000 people. It's the biggest town. Well, we're up to 16,000 now. It's the biggest town in Wyoming. Uh, it's a, a city block in New York. But it's, you know, so the idea I was going to be posting these things for my neighbors and former classmates or you know, people, you, family members to read this. I struggled with that. But I just had this compulsion because what I had noticed early on in my writing, that whenever I wrote about something real, whether it was about our son's, our family's experience about his autism and raising him with his special need, things like that, anytime I put something real in there, people gravitated and said, hey, that's me too. Hey, you know, I'm going through that. And I thought, well, this is going to be a, a great way for me to connect with people who are going through the same thing I'm going um, I didn't think of it as I was offering anything to anyone else. I thought, well, if I put this out there, maybe I'm going to intersect with folks who are walking where I'm at right now. Um, because through that project early on, I was noticing I was a little bit sicker and more, you know, not as uh, I, I was a little bit more in a dark place than I'd ever assumed I was. And the more I wrote, the further on I journeyed into that to investigate that. So I, I started being vulnerable as almost a selfish thing because I thought, well, this is a great way for me to get help from people and maybe get some organic grassroots advice. And it started as that. And then the more I kind of wrote about my life in real terms, the more it just started attracting people from all over the world. And it wasn't really until about 2018, 2019, when I think the world was in a different place um, than when I started writing in 2016. You know, the world a lot of institutions were kind of breaking down. A trust was breaking down. The pandemic was about to start raging. Political strife, everything that was going on. I think my writing started resonating with people, and more and more people started gravitating to, towards it because I think people are craving authenticity. I think people are craving vulnerability to see, hey, it's you know, kind of the way I did at first. I'm not alone. Here are some other people walking that way. And I think it's, I think it's, that's kind of been the journey I've been on is connecting with all these people in, in such a real way, but it's, it's terrifying to be vulnerable. It is. And yet it's also freeing. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I lead retreats and um, sometimes we do this dyad process where, you know, like the two of us would just sit and I would give you five minutes to just talk and I would listen yeah. And it's, it's always amazing the things that come out of like the surprises that the truth that, that comes out of people's mouths when they're yeah. given a chance and space to, 
to be listened to and to investigate and and it can be terrifying, but yet it also feels like the way through somehow. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's been my process through um, my journey. I, I'm in such a, I'm a, I'm such a better place in my life now because I was able to share I, I was able to share my story and feel like people were listening to me and they could hear what I was saying and they could say, yeah, I'm, I'm on that little island you're on right now too, or I've been there before. And it is such a great, it was such a encouraging experience for me to connect with so many people who would send me messages and share part of their story and part of their life. And it's just an amazing way. The more we put ourselves out there, the more people will appreciate it and say, yeah, that's where I'm at right now too. And that, that was really how it started. And it wasn't ever a plan of mine for this to do. I had never really written before. I, uh, I, I, I teach improv. Um, like I write comedy sketches for a little comedy group I'm here in town, but I wasn't ever thinking, Oh, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to do all these things. It, it was, I'd have no infrastructure for that. I never thought of doing that. And it just all sort of coming organically. And it started with these conversations with God in which we kind of bantered back and forth. And then eventually God started responding to me in lyrically and poetically and in ways that I don't speak. I mean, I don't speak poetically. I don't go around quoting Rumi or anything like that. I had never read poetry before. I had never studied it before. And all of a sudden, organically, it all just started emerging from me. And I guess my improv training taught me this is in improv. The one rule is whatever the suggestion from the audience is, you just say yes whatever it is, yes, and, okay, I might have this idea that I'm going to be do a wonderful Ronald Reagan impression on the moon, but all of a sudden, someone in the audience says, no, I want to see a cow, and you've got to let go of this great idea you had, and just become the best cow you can be, and just say, yes, and, here we go, and that's kind of how my writing's been, it's just been, yes, okay, this is kind of coming, and I'm just going to say, and to it, and just keep saying and until I run out of things to say and to. And I, I, so it was not anything I planned for. And that's usually how true magic happens, right? You just, you're open and, and your themes, you know, you have this, um, I grew up Catholic too, Mm -hmm. and your themes, um, the way God speaks in your writing is like the theme that comes through strongest when I read is this unconditional love. Yeah. It's just like again and again in different ways, in different lyrical ways, in different situations. And can you talk about how, you know, maybe your writing has evolved your your faith or how, yeah, like what you've learned through your own writing? Yeah. So I, I grew up Catholic, like I said, and, you know, I went to a Catholic school my whole life, uh, rosaries, nuns with uh, rulers. Uh, you know, very much a, uh, a very formative kind of serious Catholic upbringing. And in fact, for a while in my early 20s, I worked for Catholic Church as a youth director. And I had this idea and I thought I, I deposited all this good faith into this bank that later on in my life, when the poop hit the fan, that I would be able to go to the bank and pull out all these things that I needed from my faith. It was, you know, I, I had said a million Hail Marys. I've, I've gone through all the sacraments. I've, I've, I've done everything. I've been to the Vatican. I've prayed in very wonderful, ornate churches. But when my crisis came in about 2015, 2016, I was go, it was like I was putting a bucket down the well and it was coming back empty and dry. And, and that was my 
I think underlying kind of anger and frustrations. Like I've done all this. I've been such a good boy. I've done everything I was supposed to do. And now nothing I was told that would be there for a safety net was there for me. And then everyone was telling me, just have more faith, just pray harder, do these things. And it wasn't working for me. So these conversations started. And I think that's where I'm at now. My relationship with God isn't necessarily so institutional. It isn't so much about, um, I guess, form. It's more relational. And that's what these conversations are. I imagined when I write them, I never know what I'm going to write about when I sit down. I don't have a plan. I just sit down and I think, how do I feel today? And I start writing from that emotion. And God responds as I would, as I would hope a friend across the coffee table would to me if I was in the middle of a crisis or middle of a moment of, of suffering or whatever it is. And God would respond in a relational kind of way instead of an instructive prescriptive kind of way. And so that's where my faith life has evolved to now. I, I'm still Catholic, but it's, a, I feel different. I feel a little bit different when I go to church now. I, I, I don't feel as attached to the form and tradition of things. I feel more attached to the prayer and the idea that it's a relational experience between me and whatever the divine is on the other side. I love that. And I love how your own relationship kind of mirrors I mean, you have brought so much um, solace, I think, to the people that have read your words. Um, and so it's it's just an interesting parallel that that you then are offering this relational form of healing, really, to the people who receive your words, which is pretty great. Yeah, I, and that's part of my work I'm still doing. I have a hard time thinking that anything I'm doing really matters to anyone else out there. It's, I just have this compulsions, like I need to keep doing it in case there is one other person out there who is having a terrible day and just needs something to show up while they're doom scrolling on their, on their mm -hmm. Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever it is to stop for a second and be like, there is somebody else. There is a penguin shaped human in Wyoming who is <laughs> the exact same thing or walked that same road. And he knows what I'm going through. And that's what I was in desperate need of in 2015, 2016. And that's what I'm just trying to do. Every time I write something, you know, selfishly, I'm still writing for myself. I'm still connecting to those parts in my, the holes in my heart. I'm still examining and figuring out. But I always think, I hope this helps at least one other person out there. Mm. More than one, I would guess. I would yeah. surmise. Um, I'm a, a mother of four, and I know that you have three children. And you yeah. write really beautifully about your journey with um, your son with autism and that, um, that poem in particular, um, really, really, I know you've written a number of poems on that, but, um, it was just such a beautiful, um, I don't know. It was one of those again, where it just brought tears to my eyes in the wisdom and the simplicity of it. Would you, would you mind reading that? No, let me uh, pull that one up. I think I know which one it is we're talking about. I think it uh, has to do with not being broken, correct? Yes. Okay, yes. Let me find that one really, really quickly. And it's the idea that I wrote, so our son was diagnosed with autism in the early 2000s here in Wyoming. Uh, he's now 22, so it's been about 20 years um, he's been diagnosed. And when he was initially diagnosed, we were told, he will not have an independent life. 
he will never speak, uh, probably, he will never have those experiences that we all took for granted, you know, proms, first dates, um, driving a car, all those things. And so I was, in, in early 2000s, I was really stuck in that moment of grief. And it's the idea of you're grieving for a kid who's just right here in the back seat of your car with you. He's right here physically in front of you but you're grieving for everything that you think he's going to miss out on in your life. And then you start grieving for yourself. It's like, what about me as a parent? I'm grieving out all these moments that I'm going to have with my kid. And that was the first example of improv in my life because it was my wife who was the one who did it, who kind of pulled me out of it. We got diagnosed in Denver and I remember driving home from Denver. We went to the office and they said, you know, all these scary things. And on the drive home, I'm still in Denver thinking about all these things. They said, my wife is already an hour ahead of us talking about, okay, here's the people we need to call. Here's the resources we need to seek. And this is what we're going to start doing. And this is early 2000s in Wyoming. There wasn't a lot of resources. Autism wasn't really on the tip of everyone's tongue. There's been a lot of changes in that field over the last 20 years. But my wife was already like, okay, yes, this is happening. And here's all the things we're going to do about it. And I was stuck in that moment of like grief and not being able to get out of it. And it took me about four or five years to find my way out of that. But it was because watching my wife just be like, okay, we're going to try horseback therapy today. Tomorrow's music therapy. It was just anything. It was a matter of desperation. And in that, it was the idea of getting rid of all these, you know, we had relatives, older relatives who grew up in a different time telling us, no, you need to just not talk about it and maybe don't let anyone know. It'd be kind of like, let it be a family secret. And it was one of those things like, my wife was like, no, we're going to throw everything we can at this desperately. And when I hit my point in 2015, when I started going through my own struggles, I used that same approach. It's like, I'm going to try everything I can to get through this moment um, and find, you know, whether it's, you know, taking eight hour walks or whether it's starting to write, you know, email poetry online for everyone to read. That was the approach I took, but it was because of the lessons I've learned from my son's experience with autism. You know, it's 20 years later, he is now at the University of Wyoming, living independently, doing things, you know, he's still definitely has some quirks and he's still living with his autism and uh, he's he's finding amazing ways of reflecting that light off of him into the world but it's uh it's it, he was my first uh, writing teacher years ago in this whole process um, yeah so let me find this poem really quick sure. and uh, we will I will read it this was the first poem I ever wrote about um, about about autism. It was the first time, uh, this was, when I first started writing my Hey God, Hey John posts, they were all conversational. They were all just kind of like formed back and forth. This was one of the first poems I ever wrote that kind of had no Hey God, Hey John to it. It was all just John. Um, so here we go. I, I'm pretty sure this is the most edited version. One of the things I do when I write is, as I mentioned, I just write things and put it on Facebook immediately. I don't edit because then I'll overthink it and I'll, then I'll take it down. I don't, I, I have to write immediately and put it out there within 30 seconds of completing it or I never will. So over the, it, it helps with one thing because then it gives me tons of grassroots editors who are out there and say, no, you know, you know, change this around or whatever. So I don't have to pay for editing services. So this is, I think, the most up-to-date version of this poem, but here we go. 
Autism has taught me that life isn't about fixing what you think is broken. There is no fixing people. There's nothing to fix. Autism isn't another word for broken, I swear. People living with autism aren't a leaky dishwasher or a car that has a permanent check engine light. People living with autism, they're not broken, they're people. Autism isn't a Rubik's Cube. Autism isn't an escape room. Uh, yes, autism is an ancient language where sarcasm and insincerity have no translation. But autism is the, war is the language of warm tones and six-hour smiles. It's the language of hearts sewn on sleeves and on a sentiment. Autism is the inherent language of humanity where the only vowels that count are you and I. I spent years trying to fix autism until I learned that the person who needed fixing was me. My child no, not only had to live with autism, but he had to live with my ego for a while. It was a double whammy. I couldn't at the time see that true beauty lies in what is different. I couldn't see that our society's quest for perfection is the slowest poison of all. There's no need to repair a mosaic. There was the only the need to trying to understand my son by learning his cipher of autism. It wasn't about repair, it was about connection. It's about finding a way to speak to one another. It's all about building a bridge between our hearts that's wide enough to transport all of my love to him. It was all about me holding his trembling hands whenever he got lost in the world of symbols and subtle glances. It was about me showing up every day and becoming a candle even when I was in a sea of dark thoughts. Autism has taught me that life isn't growing a symmetrical garden of matching red roses. Autism taught me that life is about watching wildflowers grow between the cracks and the pavement. There is no typical in this world. Nothing is normal. Every person is a unique creation that demands to be honored. Autism taught me that rainbows are liars. There are so many more colors to this life than there are names to call them. Autism isn't just the color blue. Autism is the color of love and courage and of the soul. Autism isn't another word for broken, I swear. So beautiful. Thank you, thank you. That was, uh, and writing those pieces, even, even in now, when I think back to where I was, I kind of look back and I feel ashamed for how my first reaction was to our son getting this diagnosis. But it's the idea that we live in this world of perfect Instagram photos where everything needs to look completely perfect in the background of our photos. Kids' hairs need to be combed perfectly. Our dinner plates need to look like they were created by a Michelin star chef. Everything in our lives needs to be perfect. We've been taught that, no room for error. But autism, his experience and journey with autism has taught me it completely derailed our life as a family where I thought we were going, but it set us on this amazing adventure where it wasn't about what is happening five months from now. It's about what's going to happen in the next five minutes. With autism, he taught us that you can, everything can be going, we can be, everything can be going great on this level playing field. Everyone's great. And all of a sudden a thunderstorm comes out of nowhere. 
but that storm doesn't last very long because then there's another beautiful day coming. Autism was all about big storms and big suns back to back to back and it kept coming. And it was all about living in the moment. He was my first teacher in mindfulness. He was my first teacher in embracing the beauty of the present experience instead of worrying about, had we worried about when he was five years old about what he was gonna look like at 15, we probably would have been frozen in our tracks. It would have seemed like too big of a road for us to go, but we just worried about what's gonna happen today. What's going to happen in the next 12 hours? And, yeah, that was, that's definitely, when I write those pieces about autism, it's definitely how he instructed me about how to look for the beauty in the given moment. Yeah, and I mean, whether, I think you can extrapolate that just with or without a diagnosis of yeah. autism to your children in general, right? There's yep. just this pressure right now um, for kids to, I think more than ever, more than when we were growing up, I mean, to look a certain way to have a resume when you're, you know, in high school and, and for parents to sort of um, live vicariously through their children's um, accolades. And um, it seems to me that, you know, that, that the beings showing up um, with autism are teachers that just cut through that for us in a way that, that other things seem to not be able to cut through as clearly. No, and that was probably in our in our experience as hard as it was for um, Noah to be our firstborn because we didn't know the signs to look for. We had never had children before. I didn't have any younger brothers or sisters, so I didn't know what little babies were like. We just thought everyone told us boys are fussy, and so we didn't notice the cues early on that something was amiss. Had he been our third child, we probably would have noticed things, but we didn't notice at the time. But his, but the blessing that we got for him being our first son he taught us that it's as a parent, I had these expectations. Well, I want my kid to be impressive. I want my child to do these things. I want them to be a doctor or lawyer, whatever it is, the pressure is it became, and I've never thought about this before till just now. I wanted us to have a relationship and that became the most important part is like, I couldn't worry about what his grades were going to be. I couldn't worry about how he measured up to other kids in his class. I had no control over any of that. I was, it was helpless. All those things that I was going to be competitive about were washed away. The only thing I could control was how much I was reaching out to keep building that bridge, to keep making that uh, relationship and connection between us, because it took a little bit of translating. We spoke different languages and it took a little bit of learning those codes. But I think it's a lesson we applied to our other two kids um, to give them a lot more room to be themselves, to a lot more room to fail. It's okay to fail. It's okay to screw up. It's okay. It's okay to be at 20 years old and not really know where you're going in your life. It's totally okay. And Noah being our firstborn taught us that it's okay to go off the map. We have all these maps and scripts we were given when we get married or have kids or whatever it is. It's okay for that map to burn up and to kind of go explore the wilderness together and get lost together. And I think we did. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's um, you can extrapolate that to so many things. I mean, you know, we're recording this um, in the first week of March and there's so much happening in the world right now. And, um, and you write John too, a lot about, um, like brokenness and wholeness, but also this idea of maintaining hope at moments where um, it seems pretty dark. Yeah. 
right. And, you know, talking about going off in the wilderness and not seeing a path and, and yet maintaining some, some semblance of hope. And I think that part of your message is, you know, at a, at a time where, um, scripts seem to be just falling apart and, you know, we, who knows what's coming down the pike. Right. I think that's another reason why your, your work is so universal right now. It's like, um, it's like a lantern or something to go out into the night when we don't know what we're doing. Yeah, no, it's, uh, if we've taught anything, if we've all learned anything in the last couple of years, and this is why, so part of my job for the last year, and I'm not doing it anymore, but I owe oh, a couple of years, I was a community reporter and I would go out and cover uh, city council meetings or school board meetings or uh, rallies at capitals. And those, all those things have become increasingly more intense in the last few years. And my first impression of that where I met some really angry people that were really angry at me just for being there to try to write a story about what was going on there. Just inherently, I've never had people just furious at me just for just being there and screaming at me and yelling at me. But the more I hung out with them, the more I realized even people I disagreed with politically, empirically had diametrically opposing thoughts on how the world works. They're just like me. They're, they feel helpless. There's a lot of things we cannot control in this world. We can't control pandemics. We can't control dictators marching. We can't control weather. We can't control all these crazy things. We can't control political movements as individuals. We cannot control what's going on in the world, but we can control how we react to it. And the more that I looked at these people who were screaming at me and yelling at me, they were just afraid. And I know what it's like to be afraid. I know what it's like. My fear manifests itself in a different way. I go more internally. I write more. I spend more time, I think, uh, reflective. I don't go out and do things. These people, people who are angry are also out there marching and yelling, and they're just scared. And that's, you know, that's because they feel helpless. And that's what this last few years has been like. Um, one of my bigger poems that I wrote in August, that's probably what led us all to me to be connected with you today, was a poem I wrote just in August. Um, I was having a panic attack and I didn't know I was having one at the time. I didn't know what I was so anxious about. Um, and I sat down at a coffee house. I had about 25 minutes to get this poem done before I had to go pick up my wife from work. We're a single car family. So I was like, I got to get this poem done. Cause I knew when I can feel like my heart is like in a knot, I know writing it is a way to, and it's like a Christmas tang- Christmas lights all tangled together. It's how I entangle them. It's like doing a crossword puzzle for my heart. And it's like, okay, I got to get this up so I can figure out what's going on. I couldn't quite put a finger on it. I was anxious, but there wasn't anything acute I was anxious about. I wasn't you know, going to be arrested or I had a bankruptcy coming. It was just I felt this dire sense of worry without knowing what it was. And so I sat down and I wrote this poem in about 25 minutes. And then I closed my laptop out and, you know, I use my process of just writing it without editing it and putting it out there. If you're a writer listening, don't do that. They they would never, I mean, there's copywriters. You're like, don't do what I'm doing. I'm not, you know, I'm not, don't take writing advice from me on that. But so I, I did this poem. I wrote it closed my laptop out, went, picked up my wife. I came home, I made dinner. And then about five hours later, I turned on my laptop again and realized it's been shared about 800 times, which for me was amazing. Oh, wow, 800 people. The next morning it had been shared about 8,000 times. And within like a week, it was shared from my own place about 150,000 times, but about, I think, what do they estimate? Close to a million times 
just on social uh, Facebook alone. Um, and it connected me to all these people across the world who identified with the sense of anxiety that I was feeling at the time. And so if you don't mind, I'll read that one I now. That, please. And it was just kind of like, a, it was a reminder to me that we're all going through this ex experience together. We're all on this rocket ship of 8 billion people rotating next to an ever-expanding, uh, ever-exploding fireball in this ever-expanding universe. Like we have no control much over anything except how we treat ourselves and how we take care of ourselves and other people. So anyway, I wrote this poem about my anxiety. My brain and heart divorced a decade ago over who is to blame about how big of a mess I've become. Eventually, they couldn't be in the same room with each other. Now my head and my heart share custody of me. I stay with my brain during the week and my heart gets me on weekends, but they never ever speak to each other. Instead, they just give the same note to pass to the other one every week and the notes they send to each other, they always say the same thing. They say, this is all your fault. On Sundays, my heart complains about all the times my head has let me down in the past. And on Wednesdays, my head lists all the times my heart has screwed things up for me in the future. They blame each other for the state of my life. So I, uh, there's been a lot of yelling and crying lately. So I've been spending a lot more time with my gut, who kind of serves as my unofficial therapist. Most nights, I sneak out of the window in my rib cage and slide down my spine and collapse on my gut's plush leather chair that's always open for me. And I just sit, 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 sit until the sun comes up. But last evening, my gut asked me if I was having a hard time being caught between my head and my heart. I nodded. I said I didn't know if I could live with either of them anymore. My heart's always sad about something that happened yesterday, while my head is always worried about something that might happen tomorrow, I lamented. My gut just squeezed my hand, but I continued. I said, I just can't live with my mistakes of the past or my anxieties of the future. My gut smiled at me and said, in that case, I think you should go stay with your lungs for a while. I was confused and the look on my face, it kind of gave it away. So my gut said, if you're exhausted about your heart's obsession with the fixed past and your mind's focus on an uncertain future, your lungs are the perfect place for you. There's no yesterday in your lungs. There's no tomorrow there either. There's only now. There's only inhale. There's only exhale. There's only this moment, there's only breath. And in that breath, you can rest for a while while your head and your heart work out their relationship. So this morning, while my brain was busy reading tea leaves and while my heart was staring at old photographs, I packed up a little bag and I walked to the door of my lungs. And before I could even knock, she opened the door and with a gust and a smile, she embraced me and she said, what took you so long? And so I wrote that not knowing it was just this general feeling of angst going on. We're always caught between everything that happened to us yesterday that we have regrets about how I spoke to someone yesterday, the decisions I made 10 years ago that I can't go back and change now. I'm constantly stuck in the past. And then half of me is always in the future worrying about bills in the future or my kids in the future or whatever terrible news story will be in the future. And in that, 
you miss that miracle in the moment that my son was trying to teach me about 20 years ago. And even though, yeah, I, I feel like my writing is successful and people connect to it, I'm still learning. I'm still reminding myself of this every single time I show up to write. So when I, it was really one, nice and wonderful how you put it that hope always kind of shows up even in some like really depressing, sad posts. And that's it. I think I'm writing for myself to remember no matter how I'm feeling in this moment, no matter the struggles I'm having, no matter the times when I feel like I'm going right back exactly where I was in 2015, there is this undercurrent and vein of hope that still exists as long as I keep looking at the world as a miracle and my existence as a miracle, not as some sort of crazy accident. And maybe it is an accident, but what an incredible miracle this all is that we're all here together. And when you stay in the moment and you're present in the moment, that miracle is a lot easier to identify than when I'm stuck in the past or the future. It's so beautiful. I'm, I'm on the wall beyond me. I have a picture of Ram Das, right? And, and mm-hmm. all of his teachings boil down to being here now, right? That we're all walking each other home. Yes. And it's in this now moment. It's the only time, right? That yeah. especially now with everything that's going on in the world, I mean, That's so beautiful that just by focusing on the breath, I mean, so many traditions teach this and it seems so simple that we often overlook it. Yeah. We're like, it has to be more complicated. Right. Do more than just breathe. But it's the one thing that physiologically, like even as you were reading it, I just felt sort of this sigh and like, it's okay. In this moment, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, the, how many times, I don't know how many times we breathe every day, but I would venture to say, I don't notice any of them unless I'm doing something wrong and I'm not breathing or I'm sneezing while I'm breathing or whatever thing I'm doing. It's, I only notice my breath when I'm not doing it right. And, but it's the one thing that we, that it's the one thing that keeps me alive. It's the one thing that keeps the blood moving through my veins. And it's the one thing that we have such an ample resource of around us is air and breath and each breath being a miracle. I don't, I got a D minus in biology every single time I took it. I don't know how any of this works. I can't (laughs) explain anything scientifically, but I know that it's amazing to me that I can breathe in this invisible air and that it keeps me alive. And that just happens to be, we have an abundant amount of that just for us to live right here now in this moment. It feels such an amazing coincidence or miracle that I think I'm trying to make sure I honor it all the time. And in doing that, you honor the present moment because if you're focusing on your breath, you're not thinking about five minutes from now. You're not thinking about five minutes ago. You're thinking about this moment, this breath. And uh, yeah. And John, the fact that you wrote that in 25 minutes, kind of because I am a little bit of a writer, like that blows my mind. That shows me that you're really, um, you're kind of surrendering to your higher self or to your, you know, your highest wisdom. And it's kind of flowing through you. Do you ever think that you'll teach others how to do this or almost as a way of therapy is not the right word, but of like of healing kind of. Yeah, I wouldn't say uh, I would. Well, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. But I I say my writing, my writing process has been so therapeutic for me, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't replace therapy. But it has been so therapeutic for me because, like I mentioned, I didn't identify a lot of the things I was going through until I wrote and I gave myself permission to make it real. Every now and then you might have a passing thought that goes through your head like a high speed train just rambles its way through. And I probably had that before. I probably had those moments like, I don't feel well. 
maybe I have depression, maybe I have some sort of mental illness, but when you write it and you see it there in front of you tangibly as something that went from a thought through your fingers onto a screen or onto a little cocktail napkin or wherever you're writing, then it becomes real. And then it felt like now I can do something about it because I've admitted it. And I can see it's almost like a garden. I think of writing as a garden. And when I start writing something, I don't know what I'm, the seeds I'm planting until I'm done with it. I just know how I feel in the moment. And then when I'm done with a piece, it's like a, like a month later and now the garden has grown. Yeah, I don't write from any, like I wrote that in 20, 25 minutes because that's exactly how I felt. And I just surrender to that feeling and that emotion. And no matter how it comes out, that's what it's going to look like. And I've certainly written some stinkers and some things like that that probably don't make sense to anybody else but me. Um, but that's my process. It's like I surrender to how I feel. Um, and sometimes it's joy. It's not always sad or, you know, melancholy. There's moments of joy and moments of, you know, happiness and you know, love and all those good things, too, that if you're present to and you're mindful of in that moment and you surrender to it, it's amazing the words that can come to you. Um, I am, I did not, I don't read poetry. I mean, I just started reading poetry in the last year once I started writing poetry. So I didn't have these ideas like, oh, I'm going to really become a poet and put all these words together. These words don't come together unless I really, and I like how you use it, surrender to the process. I surrender to how I'm feeling. I imagine I'm laying down in a river and the water around me is how I feel. And sometimes it's sadness. Sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's anxiety or regret, and I just lay in that water, and I let it kind of carry me through down a stream to wherever it needs to go, and then when we're done, the poem's done, or whatever I'm writing is done, and I look back, and I don't know how I came up with any of it, um, but I think it's the idea of just, just kind of letting yourself go to it, and just letting it, letting it take you wherever it needs to go. And having the courage to allow it to express through you. It does take courage. Yeah, I mean, yes, I would, I would, as a, again, I would have a hard time ever calling myself courageous. I, I get scared um, with certain commercials on, I, I don't like horror movies, but uh, I, I'm not the most courageous person, but it is the idea of, and this is what I try to tell my children is it takes so much courage to be yourself. It takes so much courage to not worry about the expectations of others. Yes, I mean, writing about my anxiety, certainly in a small town, let alone just putting on Facebook, letting people know that I'm not perfect, that I have things going on behind the scenes that I'm putting out in the forefront, it is terrifying. It is scary. It makes you feel exposed. But I think the more people who do that, the more stigma gets taken away of mental illness, certainly with men. And I'm not speaking on behalf of men at all. Um, I, but it's there are a lot of there are a lot of guys who don't who don't talk about what's going on until it's too late. I mean, here in Wyoming, the suicide rates are really high, and certainly among men, they're really really high, because I think it's the idea of like I can't let people know how I what's going on because then they'll think less of me, and it's, you know, maybe it's the Wayne Dyer quote of it, what other people think of me is not my business. My business is just being me. And so that's, I'm just going to, writing has allowed me to find a way to be myself, to put myself out there 
And the more I do it, the less I worry about what other people think about me or what they're going to whisper about me behind the scenes. And, you know, that doesn't really happen as much often as my ego or my fear would tell me those things happen. More of the time, it's people being like, thank you so much for saying those things because I was afraid to say them myself. Yeah. And that truth resonates, right? And you, you'll never know how many people, I mean, I'm sure you get tons and tons of comments, but how many people read your stuff, how many people you help and who may not comment, you know? So, so I would really say that your writing gives other, you know, I, I think that um, when we see truth, when I see wholeheartedness, it's a feeling that I have in witnessing Mm -hmm. others and um right? It's, it's the sameness between us, right? There's something in you that resonates in me and you being transparent or vulnerable or willing to write about it somehow gives me permission, maybe in a different way, but in, in a, in a potentially therapeutic way to do the same. And, And that's how relationally we, you know, we can be angels for one another. I think that's what you're doing in your work. No, that's, that's really wonderful. I, I, and it's amazing. I, I don't know if I've ever actually connected these things, but the idea of, I look at my writing as relational. I don't look at my writing as, oh, here is a person that's on a hierarchy status that's handing out 10 steps to a better you, right. or here's 15 steps to no longer beer, be- no more beer bellies. It's not that. Here's a person that's a human that's reflecting their humanity as up and down as jagged rock that it is, but here is my humanity and the more I do that, I feel like, you know, it's a, what we said earlier, authentic, authenticity, people are craving it. They want to know, they want to feel that something real. We've had so many, we're sick and tired of being focus grouped. We're sick and tired of, you know, people crafting the perfect message or putting together the perfect filter for Instagram post. It's about show me real people, show me real experiences. And that's the poetry I'm drawn to is the poets, you know, every now and then I'll go to like an open house where you get a, or like an open mic where you have like a a 16 year old girl get up and read something from a folded up piece of paper in her pocket that she wrote. And it's real and it's honest. And, you know, maybe 20 years ago, I would have been a cynic saying there's like, oh, here's we go again, another, you know, heart draining, you know, emo poem from someone, but no, it's someone sharing their real experience and how beautiful is that? I'd much rather have that than someone who writes an Academy Award winning script, you know, that's been 10 people have take put eyes on and read and talk, we need to move this word to, you know, make this a bigger tent for people to come in. No, write something real, write something that connects you to the next human next to you to, to remind us all that we're all in this together. We're all on this experience and those things that we're all going through, war, pandemics, political turmoil, anger, social media, all the things that are changing in, our, in this fast-moving world, we're all experiencing them at the same time. We're all, we all went through the pandemic together. We all likely lost someone during the pandemic together, or we likely know someone who lost someone, or we all lost our jobs. We all went through this tra- trauma together. We were all in the rollover accident together we're not separate and that you know we all have different reactions to it but if anything i'm trying to do what my writing has done for me and maybe it's done for other people is i think it's made me a much more empathetic person it's opened my heart up to those people who i was at those rallies who wanted to put me in the trunk of their car or yell at me or spit at me because they're so angry and so mad you know 10 years ago i would have been mad at them and angry at them for being angry at me but no now it's I understand what it's like to be afraid and I feel your fear and, you know, I get it. I don't get what you're doing, but I get your fear 
and it's empathy. And I think my writing has opened up that kind of vault in my heart that had probably been closed for a long time. Well, John Rodell, I wanna, I'm so grateful our paths have crossed. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing in the world and that you'll continue to do. Your prolificness as a writer, um, it just, it's like you're tapped in, you're plugged in and um, the world is a better place for it. So thank you. Oh, thank you. That was really, again, I'm going to have to call you every day for this pep talk. That was really, really nice. Thank you. No, I, yeah, no, it, it's such an honor to be here and to share my story. Yeah. So thank you so much. Thanks, John. Thank you.